0: Amen. We'll open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, Mark, Luke. If you're new to the Bible, cut it open roughly in the middle, then give it a few pages, just like a little chunk, and you're probably around the Gospels, and you're looking for Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 11. I'm always humbled and thankful for, humbled by and thankful for, Pastor John's gifts. And one of them is to stand in his rock ports, as it were, in this pulpit, and to do so in my Nikes. So I'm grateful for his asking me to fill in for him. And I'm humbled by that fact, uh, because, of course, like all of you, I think the world of Pastor John. And I mentioned earlier that the Spirit has been showing off uh, here at Ridgeview. Uh, And if you haven't seen that yet, to buckle up because it's only a matter of time. And and I also mentioned that I'd been leaning for quite some time toward looking as a family. We've been doing sign language together. So family was kind of make an OK sign and then you make a circle with it looking as a family at the Lord's Prayer, but which I'm going to argue we should probably call the model prayer. I hope to make a case for calling it the model prayer as we move through this text. And the model prayer would be the model prayer. And I hope I'm getting that right because I didn't get the chance to run it by Miss Nancy beforehand. But she can take me to task on that later. The model uh, prayer and let's go back just briefly to 1 John uh, chapter 5. You can stay in Luke. I'm sure the guys can figure out a way to throw this back up there. 1 John chapter 5, 13 through 15. That's where we started with our uh, welcome scripture, our call to worship. Where we saw in verse 13, beginning in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you may have eternal, that you know you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. And John is building a very particular kind of argument here. I'm not going to weigh you down with the definition, but it's it's a syllogism. And it's a, 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 a structured argument where all the parts of it depend on all the other parts being true. And so a paraphrase of this might be the following. You may be confident in Christ that your prayers are already answered, provided they align with God's will and therefore God's word. For his will is always in alignment with his word. So with that as a, as a basis, with that as a foundation, let's jump in with Luke 11. And we're going to start in verse 1 of Luke 11. And you'll see smuggled in there about midway through, uh, right after uh, verse 2, I've kind of smuggled in part of this prayer that's found in Matthew 6. And, and by the way, let's not see that as a reason to doubt the truth of Scripture, right? If you went to go hear someone teach for multiple days, and, and, and you know, John says at the end of his gospel that if everything were written down that Jesus said and did, the whole world wouldn't contain the libraries full of books that could be written about what Jesus did just in his time among us, right? So if if he had taught so much and you'd heard this person teach so much and and we both wanted to copy down this prayer, you and I were both gospel writers, we're going to get some things, maybe one of us will get some things that the other wouldn't. Or one of us would say this and, and not that. But as long as both are true, as long as they don't say different things then there's nothing untruthful or inaccurate about it at all. So we're going to package Matthew's prayer, Matthew's uh, sharing of the model prayer from chapter 6. We're going to bring verse 10 in, and you'll see it kind of in the middle there. So let's jump in, Luke 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. So Jesus said to them, when you pray... Say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's from Matthew. Luke 3, or Luke uh, eleven three. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us of our sins for we are ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And that's not a money debt, that's a sin debt. And then finally, lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. So here's the first thing that I want you to see about the model prayer. You know, have two kind of big sub points and a, or two big points and a few sub points for each. And the first major point is this. It begins with God. Prayer begins with God. That's the second part of verse two. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, So at the first and most practical level, this is a reminder that we pray to God alone, for God's ears alone, for his sake alone. The Pharisees were indicted by Jesus for praying that they might be seen and noticed by everybody else and paid attention to. In in Matthew 6, before Jesus teaches on the model prayer there, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. But truly I say to you, they have their reward. We pray to God alone. It reminds me of a story that's told about Lyndon Johnson and his press secretary Bill Moyers. Uh, Lyndon Johnson was known to be very loud and aggressive in his leadership style. And Bill Moyers was saying grace at a staff lunch in the White House, and the president shouted at him, Speak up, Bill, I can't hear a thing. To which Moyers quietly replied, I wasn't talking to you, Mr. President. Not even the president deserves our focus in prayer more than the God of the universe. Two more quick things two we need to's. First, we need to walk a line here. We need to walk a line well here. He says, father, right? Think about fathers. Good, righteous fathers are to be two things. They're, they're both to be respected and reckoned with, but they're also to be run to and refuged in. We have to see both sides in our heavenly father. A, a, a heavenly father who will hold us accountable for our sin and, and, and won't let it go without its consequence, whether it's in the blood of Jesus or on our foreheads. But also the father who, like the prodigal son, sees his son coming from a long way off. From a long way off, he saw his son and he ran to him and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him and he said, Welcome home, my son. We've got to walk the line well when we pray, Father, knowing that that God, our Father, perfectly embodies both of those facets of a father. And then secondly, we need to do what? We need to see a pattern here. Christianity is a top-down faith. It's a top-down faith. What do I mean by that? Let me give you some examples. In prayer, the Father mediates and we respond In worship, the Spirit moves and we rediscover. Each week, the Spirit moves and we rediscover anew the grace and mercy and love and kindness of our Savior. In discipleship, the Savior models and we replicate. We repeat it. We're just doing, when we do discipleship, exactly what Jesus did. That's it. He chose a small group and he said, I'm gonna pour into you. He could have gone to the top of some mountain and somehow supernaturally, miraculously bullhorned his voice all over the entire planet. Because he can do anything he wants. He's God. But what did he choose to do? He choose to draw some away and say, I'm going to pour into you. And we see later in Acts that people would talk about the 12. These 12 are turning the world upside down. Because people could tell that they had been with Jesus. And then in evangelism, that's prayer, worship, discipleship. and evangelism, the Godhead, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit redeems, so therefore we recruit. That's probably a trite word for it, but that's exactly what we're doing. That's a top-down faith. God is the first mover, and we respond. That's why Ephesians says, while you were dead in your sins and trespasses, God loved you enough to do this. Right? It was God who moved first. Derek mentioned that in his testimony on, on Wednesday night to our students. So we begin with God. Now, let's kind of jump over to the side and underneath that a little bit. And here's what I want you to see next. The, the, the second part of verse 2. We see deserved reverence. God deserves reverence our reverence. Here's what Jesus tells us to say, Father, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name is a request that God's name would be honored and treated with reverence, with respect. And his name includes his reputation and all that is said about him. What we're essentially saying here is, may all people everywhere respect and honor the name of God. Now we speak more of reputation nowadays than someone's good name. We say they have a good reputation. But what is a reputation if it's not attached to a name? Reputations don't just float around out there in the ether. Reputations are attached to you and to your name. And the Bible tells us in Proverbs 22, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. I want to show you a brief clip from uh, the movie production of one of my favorite plays of our century. It's called The Crucible by Arthur Miller. And it's about the Salem witch trials, which as we know now, were essentially a case study in hysteria and mob mentality. Now I know that we don't deal with witch hunts and unfair mob mentality and cancel culture and stuff like that nowadays. But back then, all it took was an accusation a behind-someone's-back character question, a slander, a malicious whisper, and you could be trussed up on charges of practicing witchcraft. And like the Spanish Inquisition before it, the witch trials encouraged false confessions because it was only by confessing that you could escape the capital guilt and death by hanging. And the great irony of that historical moment, the great irony was that none of those who actually confessed to practicing actual witchcraft were ever executed. But only the 19 who steadfastly refused to confess to something that they had not done. Defending yourself got you labeled defensive, essentially. And that, the logic went, is exactly what a witch would do, try to defend themselves. In the play, John Proctor has finally, after fighting the good fight for some time, and trying to clear his name and, and, and prove that he had nothing to do with this, he's given up and he indicates that he will confess Just to avoid hanging. But he's not told that he's going to have to sign his name to the confession until the last moment. And the one-minute clip that we're getting ready to see right now picks it up at that moment. Right when he learns he's going to have to sign his name to it. It's a powerful performance by Daniel Day-Lewis. But such passion, such desperation in his defiance of signing his name to something untrue, even to save his life. Now, all that from a sinful man, a man who just said in the clip, he doesn't even count himself to be worth the dust of the feet of those who have already hanged. So if he feels that kind of zeal, that kind of passion for the protection of his name, and deep down we do too, let's be honest, imagine the zeal of the perfect God in whom there is no flaw, no sin, no temptation, no imperfection, no stain. God's zeal and jealousy for his name is one of the most scripturally provable ideas in, in all of God's word. I'll just give you a few. Psalms 23, 3. He restores my soul. Psalm 23, if you've never seen it there. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Or Psalm twenty-five, eleven. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is... Great. And I could take you to Psalm 31.3 or Joshua 7.9 or Ezekiel 20.44, Isaiah 48.11, and the list goes on and on and on. For the sake of your name, you act. So we noticed earlier in, this, in, in the message this morning that Christianity is a top-down faith. And God is the first mover, the driving force, the kickstarter the spark of all beginnings in creation. So when we pray that God's name would be hallowed, we do so because he has moved and he has worked and he is moving and he is working to hallow his name. We're joining him in what he's already doing. Let me give you a Trinitarian example. First, Jesus protecting and glorifying the name of his father. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. John twelve twenty eight. What about Jesus protecting the name of the Holy Spirit? Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven amongst people, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Or God's exaltation of the name of Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So why should we pray for and work towards and seek out the hallowing of God's great name? Because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. And because at that name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that will happen fully when Christ returns and we'll pray for that right now. Second part of verse two, we see desired Rain. We see deserved reverence firstly, and then next we see desired reign. Jesus says, pray your kingdom come. Your kingdom come, Lord. Saint Augustine wrote the following, give me chastity, but not yet. See, he'd been living a life of sensual pleasure seeking and indulging himself at every single turn in every way that he could, and he just wanted to carry on with that a little bit longer. Then he Then he wanted the good thing. That's like saying, essentially, give me virtue, but let me enjoy this vice a little bit longer. And see, here's what's happened. We've allowed this this mindset to be cutified into the American church regarding the kingdom of God and the return of Christ. You might hear somebody say, man, I'll be super stoked about Jesus coming back, but it wouldn't bother me if you waited until after fishing season, or until after I enjoy a few years of retirement, or fill in the blank, or on the other side of the coin, but just as disappointing. Man, I wish Jesus would come back before my student loans kick in or before my kids become teenagers. See, the first is about enjoying something more than Christ's return and reign. But the second is exactly like it, just in a different way, because the latter is about enjoying the avoidance of something more than they enjoy Christ's rule and Christ's reign. And all of it From Augustine to those two seemingly trivial remarks I just shared scream two truths. The first is this, you're overselling this sin-filled world. You're overselling it big time. And secondly, it screams you're underselling the glory and the beauty and the wholesomeness and the perfection and the brilliance and the majesty of Christ's kingdom. You're not even close to doing it justice. Because what can compare to the kingdom of Christ? Nothing. It's a kingdom of perfect justice. It's a kingdom in which swords are melted down into plowshares. It's a kingdom in which the lion will snuggle with the lamb. It's a kingdom in which every sickness and every addiction is drawn out of every body that is made new. It's a kingdom in which every disability plot twist is revealed to glorify God in the exact way that it was intended to. It's not a mistake or an aberration for somebody to have Down syndrome. Only in Jesus' kingdom does that make sense. It's a kingdom in which the sun is rendered surplus goods because the glory of God lights everything and everyone perfectly. It's a kingdom in which everyone who thirst is invited to come and drink as much water as they want, even though they only need a little bit and they'll never thirst again. It's a kingdom in which those who have no money are invited to come and buy and eat without cost. It's a kingdom in which death is no more, and mourning is no more, and crying is no more, and pain is no more. It's a kingdom in which the only thing that passes away are the former things like human trafficking and opioid addiction and slavery and genocide and war and abortion and Alzheimer's and dementia and miscarriage and cancer and, 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 and. Those things pass away in Jesus' kingdom. Now, I'm sorry, you can fill in the blank with whatever you want to fill. I just wish Jesus would wait until blank. It's not worth it. It doesn't compare. So we pray your kingdom come because nothing else will do But we don't just want it to come then, right? We don't just get hyper-focused on the Jesus come whenever in the future it is that you're going to come. But now, right? We pray that God would expand the borders of the kingdom now. In my life, in my bedroom, in my phone storage, in the text threads on my phone, in my computer's browser, and in my home, and in my front yard, and my backyard, and in my neighborhood, Lord Jesus, bring your kingdom, and in our schools, and on our ball fields, and in the Capitol building, and on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, in the highest courts, in the local DCS office, at the Isaiah 117 house, at Kingswood Children's Home, in Ukraine, China, Russia, Iran, Afghanistan, fill in the blank of whatever country, in orphanages, and senior citizen homes, in hospice facilities, at St. Jude's Children's Hospital, Lord Jesus, expand your kingdom there. And if we should be the means of that expansion, Holy Spirit, give us the, encourage, the courage to seize the kingdom ramparts and rush forward, pushing back darkness. But go before us, King Jesus, we pray. Ruthlessly eliminating any opposition to your rule and your reign, to justice and fairness and holiness and righteousness as you define it. Terminate the schemes of the evil one and hold us fast in your wake, drawing us along behind you, confident in your footsteps. It's a great lyric from an old song. This world has nothing for me and this world has everything. All I could ever want and nothing that I need. That's why we pray for the kingdom of Jesus To come. Because if we can find nothing in this world that will satisfy the desires that we have, then the most logical conclusion is that we're made for another world. So let's not play in our desire for the kingdom of Christ to come in power and come in fullness. So we desire his reign. And thirdly, we see devoted resignation. Devoted resignation. Your will be done, Matthew 6 10, on earth as it is in heaven. And what we mean when we say resignation here is that we're resigned to God's will. And when we're resigned to something, it means we've understood it and we've accepted it and we're compliant to it and we've submitted to it. So we're saying we would rather your will be done, God, than ours, but also a bit more than that, because remember who's instructing us here? Who is giving us this model? Jesus, right? And Jesus didn't know this truth or instruct it the way that we know it or would instruct it. We know it because we learn it from Scripture. Jesus knows it because heaven was his home from before the foundation of the world and before the foundation of time. Sorry, that freaked you out, time man. Until his incarnation, his putting on of flesh, and his, it's his present address as well, heaven is. So Jesus knows exactly what it's like for things to happen in heaven, in, on earth, the way it happens in heaven because he knows how heaven works. Just one chapter previous to where we are in Luke this morning, we hear Jesus tell his followers, he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. A clear declaration of his his divinity to anybody who was listening. You know that thing that scripture says happened time out of mind ago? I saw it happen. I participated in his overthrow and cast him out like the scoundrel he is. Jesus knows that he is essentially instructing instructing his followers to pray, your will be done without exception. Because in heaven, nothing happens that isn't in accordance with God's revealed, expressed, effective will. Now, the hard thing for us to wrap our minds around, right, as humans, is why is it not that way on earth already? And the obvious answer is, well, God has given us free will. But beings in heaven have free will. The worship in heaven is not forced. It's compelled It's, I can't help but worship. And greater and smarter people than I have been trying to figure this out for centuries, but none of them are perfect. And likely none of them will even be able to come close to the actual beauty of the truth that we'll one day understand when we're in God's presence. But simply put, the issue is this there's sin here and there ain't there. So we might say, why doesn't God just deal with all the sin here so it can be here as it is there? Well, He has done that. And one day He'll do it completely. Because if God and his holiness were to step on the scene right now, just right now, all sin would have to be dealt with immediately because sin can't be in in the presence of the holiness of God. And therein lies the rub, right? That makes us check up a bit because the wages of sin is death. And that has to be paid by you and me or a substitute of a very particular kind. A substitute namely like God's own perfect son, the spotless lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Anyone, therefore, who had not put their faith in Christ and accepted his atoning work on the cross and been covered by his righteousness would be destroyed, cast away, removed from the presence of God in an irreversible way. So why does he wait is the better question. And scripture gives us the answer. Why must we continue to pray and petition that God would in his grace and kindness continue to make things just a little bit at a time more here like it is there? Second Peter 3. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, Peter says, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some would consider slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why hasn't it already happened already? To give someone in this room a chance to repent. Is that you this morning? Is God holding back for you? It's only pure grace and patience. We're going to pray later for patience, by the way, top down. We have patience with others, and their sin against us because he was patient with us to give us a chance to repent. All right, let's move to the second half of the prayer. So we begin with God and those three things, and it ends with man. Look at Luke 3, uh, uh, verse 3, give us, Jesus says. So he says, pray, Father, and he gets all that out of the way, and now he says, give us. Because it's only after we've properly oriented ourselves to God's glory and kingdom that we can even rightly request what we need. I'll give you an example. Uh, I took my wife and and, and my mom and dad were with us uh, on this trip uh, to a lavender farm. Don't make fun of me, dudes. It was a lavender farm. It was legit. Don't judge me. Uh, But at this lavender farm, about an hour in, we went into this little uh, sales hut thing where they were selling lavender stuff. And somehow it came out in the conversation that this lady uh, was married to a Navy SEAL. And it was like, oh, well, that's cool. Like, I've always loved, like, the military and special forces. And anybody who serves in the military, I think the discipline is incredible. I think the sacrifice is incredible. We have many in our church who uh, serve in the military and, and, and some in the Navy as well. But I'll tell you what it did. The rest of the trip, I started, like, looking behind every rock and tree on the whole property. Like, if a lavender bush, like, rustled, I would start to, like, sniper at my feet? Sniper at my feet? Like, I'd throw a rock at it to see if it would flinch. Because there's a Navy SEAL around, Right? So in other words, knowing something about this guy changed everything that I did the rest of the time that I was there. The same thing is true with God and with prayer. We have to start with God because knowing God dictates the way that we're going to interact with him. Kids know this almost intuitively, right? Kids know this intuitively. My girls know if they want something to come to me because I'm a gigantic wet noodle where my girls are concerned. They know that If they need uh, advice on how to walk the line between enchantment and modesty in their wardrobe, they need to go see mom because I don't know anything about that. My boys know to come and find me if they want to throw baseball till the the sun goes down while cracking jokes and getting spitty. They know they need to go to mom for a tender tender hug on a bad day. I'll give them that hug too, but they go to mom, let's be honest. So my role towards my daughters, in other words, is to show them what, what chivalry looks like. What sacrificial affection and lavish love looks like. And my role towards my sons is to show them what servant leadership looks like. Authentic toughness, not fake toughness. So when the occasion arises, when they're in deep need, they don't first say, how do I feel about myself today? I'll make my decision on who I go to based off that. No, they go to whoever they know. They know what's true about mom and dad. And because they know who we are and what we're about, they go to them in in, in any of those senses they need to. Just think for a few minutes about the attributes of God and how they drive our prayer. First, God is holy and just, right? So we shouldn't help God or we shouldn't ask God for help in cheating somebody else or in doing something sinful. I think I might have prayed in high school, Lord, help me to get away with cheating on this test. You know how ridiculous that is? That's a confession. I think I actually did that. It's ridiculous, though, right? He's not going to help me in that way because that's not who he is. We ought to beg for mercy. We ought to beg for the will to repent, right? God's unchanging. That's another one of God's characteristics. So we ought not request his help in something that goes against his word. I can't tell you how often I talk to people and they're like, man, I'm just praying for X to happen. And X is totally against God's word. And I want to tell them, you got no prayer of getting that, that prayer answered. You might as well pray that prayer to the exit sign or, you know, me. Because I can't give you what you need either. We have to pray in accordance with God's word. We ought to ask for grace to be submissive to what his word demands of us. And then thirdly, right, he's omnipotent. He's all powerful. So we shouldn't start any request with God if you're able. He's able. We should rather start with Lord if you're willing, just like Jesus does. Your will be done we could go on all day but to suffice it to say that the lord jesus has given us the right and accurate model in this prayer we start with god as we have this morning and then we seek accommodation of ourselves to god's will and god's plan so as we look at the petitions these are the subpoints we need to place before them father in keeping with your character may it be your will and good for your kingdom to do these things provide for me pardon my sin Give me patience and protect me. Let's look at each of those just briefly. The first one we see is in the second part of verse three. It's a petition, a plea for provision. Jesus says, give us each day our daily bread. And the operative words there are day and daily. And this is crucial Crucial, precisely because of what we know to be true about God, that all things are possible with him. So we don't ask God for Ferraris and gold bars under our pillows, not because it's impossible for him. It's totally possible. But because it's not in keeping with his character or his intention for our holiness. In Matthew 6, rebuking the Pharisees, Jesus says, your father knows what you need before you even ask him. And this is the lead-in for Jesus' teaching in prayer uh, on prayer in Matthew. He points to the flowers and, and the birds of the air and to God's provision for all of them. Then he says in verse 34... Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day, this day, is its own trouble. And most likely, if he gave us what we needed for weeks or months in advance, we'd neglect him and forget about him anyway, wouldn't we? Let's be honest, we would. And at any rate, we only need what's sufficient. We might not even want what's abundant. That's Paul's whole point in 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Not in plenty and strength and awesomeness, but it's made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So we plea, we have a petition for provision. Secondly, we have a petition, a plea for pardon first part of verse 4, forgive us of our sins. Remember our ASL sign, our sign language sign for forgive is to, to do this right here. That's important to go back and remember here that Jesus said, when you pray, say this. Because Jesus doesn't need forgiveness. Jesus grants forgiveness. We can't get that switched. Jesus has never had to pray for forgiveness once in his eternal life. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. See, where Jesus needs no forgiveness, we need forgiveness desperately. Desperately. And Jesus encourages us to ask forgiveness for our sins when he knows In this prayer, he knows at that point what our forgiveness is going to cost him. So essentially, he's telling us to say, ask for that thing that will require my life of me. When Jesus says, ask for forgiveness of your sins, he's saying, ask for forgiveness, even though I know it's going to cost me my life on a Roman cross, Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. And next we see a petition for patience, right? For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, second part of verse four. We've been walking through Luke, this book, uh, down at, at midweek with our students. And last week, it's actually the last thing in chapter 10 before it flips over to, to chapter 11, we saw the Good Samaritan. And in uh, At the end of that teaching, uh, we ended that evening by looking at the call of God upon our lives, as Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Now, that command entailed action, right? He's saying, I want you to do something. I want you to do something. But it's not an action that would save us, but would rather be an evidence of our salvation because only Jesus saves. Doesn't matter how many Samaritans or Jewish people you help, only Jesus saves, Ephesians 2.10, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we're to share the grace with others that we've received. We who were enemies received the care of the Savior, just like the Jew received kindness from the Samaritan. Forgiveness follows this same course all over Scripture. Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you and me. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. He's waiting, remember, 2 Peter 3, giving us a model of patience so that as many as can will repent. Why should we not forgive as many as we can before that great and glorious day? Top down. And finally, we end with a plea, a petition for protection. Last part of verse 4, lead us not into temptation, Jesus tells us to pray. Uh, now, I, I want you to, if you're not with me, wake up. Because of all the prayers that go unanswered, it is this one that most often goes unanswered because it goes unprayed. If we're to read on this morning in, in Luke 11, or if we came back next week, we would see how earnestly the Father desires to give, a, desires to give us what we ask. Just quickly, verses 11 through 13. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or which one, if your son asks for an egg, you'd give him a scorpion? If you then, he says to me, to us, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Do we honestly think that this prayer, Lord, keep us from temptation and sin, will go unanswered or unheeded? That this God who commands us to be holy as he is holy wants to allow us to walk into unholy situations? That this God who requires us to lead righteous lives wants to allow us to fall into the traps of the unrighteous? Or that this God who offered up his own son on a Roman cross would rather not keep us from situations and people that would lead us astray and into sin? No, he earnestly desires to keep us from those things. All we have to do is ask him, Lord, keep us from that thing that will destroy us. And this is top-down as well, right? You'll remember that while we plead with God to keep us from temptation, in Luke 4, Jesus walked right into it on our behalf. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So Jesus, the true and better Adam, passes the test in the garden, rejecting all the idolatry that Satan offered him, and resting on God's word as he did so. Jesus does what we cannot do and grants us what we cannot give ourselves, safety in being kept from temptation. So as we close, it's my prayer, it's ASL for prayer, that this morning you will have learned at the feet of Jesus something that will impact your prayer life. On Thursday afternoon, my wife and I were able to meet with some dear friends of ours, and we met in Rogersville. And we'll call them the Smith family. Because they're going into a very dangerous country where you can be arrested and killed or jailed the rest of your life with no explanation. And they're headed there as your IMB missionaries. And they spoke of the spiritual warfare that they're facing and the other families at Mission Learning Center, which is where all missionaries go before they're sent onto the field. Kids who had had no behavior issues were just absolutely acting like they had never seen these kids act before. Kids were not getting sleep, they weren't sleeping sleeping for entire nights. They were having night terrors. It was was as if everything just went crazy at Mission Learning Center. And so the people who were kind of leading them said, okay, you know what? We're not doing anything the rest of the day. We had this full schedule, cleared all off. We're just going to pray the rest of the night. And that night, the issue stopped immediately. Immediately. Every child slept. Every child had a great night. All the behavior issues started to reverse and turn the other way. While they were there another missionary shared a story with them who was working on an island nation and they'd been working there for years and they'd seen no results whatsoever. Then one week they get an email the team leader in the country gets an email and it's from the women on mission of Georgia and the Georgia WOM is about to have their yearly conference and they said we don't know why but we've picked your island to pray for so we're going to pray for you all week. So they start praying on Monday and Monday they have like a ton of people get saved. They have people in the community come and saying, hey, here's a building, a free building on the island to have a church. We'll just give it to you. And God worked more in that one week than he'd worked in three years. And we think that's random. No, it's because people were praying. People were on their faces interceding for these missionaries. And we have to do the same thing. The whole meal that we spent with them was a reminder. And I'm going to try to give you this in ASL as well, but heavens forgive me. Prayer is not the work before the great work. Prayer is the great work. Prayer is the great work. Our Lord has given us a model, and if we will imitate it and follow it, if we do, we will speak with the God who speaks. And we'll do so with confidence, the confidence of Christ, who tells us in verses 9 and 10, So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be open. Will you seek? Will you ask? Will you knock today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for your word. Father, we are thankful for your word. May your name, may it be that your name has been hallowed in this time that we have together. In the message and in the songs and in the prayers and in all the fellowship that we've had and in the Sunday school classes and in our first worship hour, may it be said that your name is hallowed here because it's worthy of being hallowed. It's worthy of being respected and loved and honored. Lord, we pray that you would build your kingdom, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done. In our lives and in our communities and on all, over all the things that we have influences in our workplaces, in our teams, in our, everything that we do. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Lord, give us what we need for this day. Don't, don't Help us not to worry about tomorrow, Lord, or next week or the week after that. But give us what we need for today. Just what's sufficient for today. Grace for this next 13, 14 hours, whatever time it is. And Lord, we'll be grateful for your provision. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us of our sins. Maybe there's someone here who has not yet called out on your name for forgiveness. And if you were to come and make everything here as it is there in your final glory, they would be separated from you, Lord. May they come forward and have a conversation about what it means to give their life to you, to follow you with everything that they have. Just just make it here on earth a little bit more each day as it is in heaven. And Lord, keep us from temptation. Protect us from the schemes of the evil one who seeks our destruction. Lord, you came that we would have life and have it more abundantly. We wanna live an abundant life in you. And that requires us to align with your will and with your word. So help us to do that as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.